You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! Pronto regia? Pronto. Questo è un collegamento speciale. Da uno studio di fortuna vi trasmettiamo le ultime immagini a noi pervenute. Ed eccomi di nuovo a voi. Sono qui per farvi qualche raccomandazione. Se vedete segnali di questo colore, significa che la zona è infetta. Giallo uguale peste. Ma siamo sicuri che questi segnali non li vedremo mai. Togliere i riflettori! Via i riflettori! What do you want? Siamo dalla televisione, ma chi trasportate? Ma voi trasportate il Papa? It's a secret! We can't say! We can't! Fateci parlare un attimo, forse l'ultima trasmissione per il mondo è importante! Ok, all on the way to the helicopter. Ti ho seminato! Non è vero! Non è vero! Giura che non è vero! Perché l'hai fatto? Perché l'hai fatto? Perché l'hai fatto? Perché l'hai fatto? Non ne avevamo il diritto! Non ne avevamo il diritto! Il seme dell'uomo è germogliato! Ho seminato! Ho seminato! Il seme dell'uomo ha germogliato! Tutti i figli! I figli dei figli! Ho seminato! Ho seminato! Il seme dell'uomo ha germogliato! 10.000 milioni di figli! Tutti i figli! I figli dei figli! 10.000 milioni di figli! Ho seminato! Ho seminato! Il seme dell'uomo ha germogliato! Tutti i figli, i figli dei figli, un milione, un miliardo di figli, ho seminato. Arrivederci a tra poco. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Miss Kat Allinger. Hello. And also back in the booth is Miss Heather Drain. Hello, hello. It's less than two minutes to midnight on the doomsday clock. On Chinese New Year, our Eastern neighbors are being quarantined from the coronavirus. And here we are talking about the end of the world, as shown in 1969 by director Marco Ferreri. The Seed of Man stars Marzio Marghine as Chino and Anne We as Emski as Dora, the only lovers left alive after a plague has wiped out most of the world's population. The two live in a seaside home where Chino has a museum to trivial objects, and he feels he has to repopulate the world, but Dora has other ideas. Of course, we're going to be spoiling this film as well as a few other Ferrari films, so if you don't want those ruined, please track down the movie and watch it. We will still be here when you get back. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw Seed of Man, and what did you think? Well, I actually forgot how fucking weird it was until we planned this episode. <laughs> I watched it again. I, I had a vague memory that it was weird, and Ferrari does 
lots of weird, but not as weird as when I started watching it back and thought, God, why didn't we pick the ape woman? It started with me with Le Grand Bouffe, actually, which I absolutely obsessed with that film. And then I got on a real Marco Ferreri trip. The The difficulty is his films are just so hard. Some of his films are so hard to track down. They just don't seem to have had the same treatment on home video that the bigger masters, Pasolini or, and crew, have had. But I became really obsessed with him because he's just such a unique voice in that whole period of Italian cinema. He's just so unique. He's such a rebel. He's such a, an anarchist. And he's also really funny, which is one of the other things I love about. This isn't so funny, this film, but some of his films are very funny. And Heather, was this a first time Ferrari for you? A few days ago, my answer would have been yes. But doing kind of the research for this episode and looking into um, this film and Ferrari, I realized I actually had exposure to two of his films. And one of which, which I was telling you, um, telling you both off, uh, off when we weren't recording was uh, real wild cinema back in the nineties had clips of the ape woman, which is fascinating because real wild cinema is tied to something weird video and stuff, which is fantastic. But it's, it's, it's kind of surreal to think of the era where you'd have like an artist like Ferrari being put like kind of on the drive-in grindhouse circuit, which is kind of fascinating and cool. And that wasn't very, that wasn't unusual at all for a lot of art house uh, people as far as how they were you know pushed in the States. But my first big one was actually Tales of Ordinary Madness because I'm a huge Bukowski. Yeah. I love Bukowski. Um, and I thought it was really good. I felt like it was, you know, like it's almost better if you divorce it from Bukowski a little bit because it's it's very like I mean I don't I don't know it's a good it's very film. Italian it's very it Italian very... <laughs> it's like an Italian interpretation of Bukowski I think that's beautifully put yeah because it's funny because I mean Barfly obviously is still made by a foreign director because it's Barbie Schroeder but Barfly feels exactly like a Bukowski like novel and it's uh but Tales of Madness is really good and plus come on Ben Gazzara and Susan Tyrell like yes please but nothing could have prepared me for Seed of Man. Nothing. Um, and in fact, I'm almost glad I went into this kind of like a new, like a lamb to the slaughter. And because, <laughs> uh, oh my God, I, this film, um, I found it to be a bit of a slow burn. But once it gets cooking, um, yeah, there's some, there's some great stuff here. I can't wait to kind of get into the latter part of the film. I had had this on DVD for the longest time and was just looking for an excuse to watch it. And I remember I was putting together like my wish list of movies to talk about. And I had Moju, The Blind Beast, and I had The Laughing Woman. And I knew both of those had large female statues in them. And then somebody said, oh, you should add the Seeds of Man to that. And I think they were talking about the woman on the beach, the figure that he carves out of sand. It's a really, really tenuous connection to those other Yes. <laughs> I'd say the other two are really connected, but not this one. Right. And <laughs> But though, strangely, those are both 1969. This is 1969. So I was like, okay, sure, I'll add this. And then 
it kind of makes sense. We were talking about Ferrari uh, a few weeks ago when we were doing Porchile. Uh, it's got one of the same actresses, uh, or it's got the same actress that was in Porchile is in this. And it's got, um, well, he worked a ton with uh, Ugo Tognasi. Um, that was like one of his go-to guys. And so it's like, okay, well, this kind of makes sense almost as a double feature to Porchile. Mm, there are some crossover. I love it when Marco Ferrari turns up in films. Oh, I forgot he was in Poor Chile. One of my favourite ones is Casanova 70, which is a Marcello Mastriani film. And he's he's in that as this like jealous Kang. <laughs> he does a good job of acting. He especially acts very well as a corpse in this one. And he kind of stands out as well. He's a bit of a character, isn't he, with his weird beard, which will we see in Seeds of Man placed on one of his characters. So, Yeah, we were just talking about uh, Arrows Plus Massacre, and there's a character in there who's a director, though he's a director of commercials. So I was like, well, he's maybe he's a stand-in for Yoshida. And in this one, yeah, Chino, when he adopts that Marco Ferreri beard, I was just like, yeah. okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can look at like Richard Dreyfus and he's got the glasses and the beard, and you're like, okay, yeah, he kind of looks like Steven Spielberg. He's kind of a stand-in for the director, but nobody's got that. I mean, other than when you go to Amish country, nobody's got that beard going on. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's brilliant, though. I think we need to do something called the weird beard of Marco Ferreri. His beard is amazing. I don't know. It's why he's so different to everyone else. I think that's why I'm attracted to his work and just him as a character. Because he was just seemed to be totally on his own trip. Like, he had no fashion sense. He had that weird Amish beard. He didn't play lip service to the press. He was really outspoken. I just love him. He was a real maverick. And I know there's one book for sure dedicated to his stuff, though it's written in Italian. And finding articles written about this film, forget about it. It was so difficult to even just find a mention of it in like Italian sci-fi articles or something. And it's like, okay, I mean, you can say this is a sci-fi movie because it takes place after the apocalypse, but... I mean, there's no ray guns in here or anything, so you're really stretching the sci-fi means. <laughs> Ferrari, though, as I mentioned just a minute ago, he's so neglected. Like, I hate using the word underrated, but he, he really is. And I think part of that, it's him and Elio Petri as well as another one. People just don't seem to bother with their films. And I think a lot of the reason is because... Ferrari did a lot of comedy and there always tends to be this looking down at comedy from the kind of upper echelons of film scholarship and I wonder if that's why I know this isn't technically a a comedy but I see him as an Italian Buñuel he he was definitely in the same ballpark he was incredibly important in the and and he was as controversial as Pasolini when you think the grand birth was as controversial as Salo. When I was researching Salo, I found a lot of articles about Le Grand Boeuf at the same time. It was as outrageous, but we never hear about it. And hardly any of his films are out on Blu-ray. And it's just, I don't know. I wonder if it is that comedy connection, because... Scholars tend to like the serious stuff, don't they? And plus, 
Marco Ferrari was always taking the piss out of people, which is one of the other things I really love about him. <laughs> so he didn't really hand it to them on a plate, did he? He would, he would refuse to talk about what his films meant. And those first two films that he made were very comical, but he insisted that they were neorealist films. So it's like he didn't... He was a troll, though, Mark. He <laughs> was, was he was. He was a total troll. And I think that's one of the other things that I love about him is he had seemed to have this real kind of cheeky attitude towards critics, especially if they were super serious. And I think he was a bit of a troll. And he, he obviously didn't take himself too seriously either. If you see some of the roles that he played as an actor. And he's going to come up again later on this year when we talk about The Lion Has Seven Heads, because he actually uh, was the production manager, I believe, for uh, Globarocious film. So it's like he had connections with the with Brazilian Cinema Novo. He was all over the French New Wave. I mean, he and Godard were going back and forth. Yeah, he was a huge producer as well. It's like, why is he so ignored? I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm thinking maybe next year we just do a whole month dedicated to Ferrari because, yeah, his films are so underwatched and, yeah, they're so much fun to talk about. And he had these themes that we'll we'll talk about as we're talking about this movie that he would come back to. So it's like interesting to see how he would play those themes off of each other and weave them in and out of different films. One of the things I wanted to know was about these opening credits in what is going on with this like low hum that's going on and all of these pictures of what are these people that were in the war? What is going on with all of these black and white photos? I'm, I'm sure it has some sort of significance, but I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it obviously, there are obviously people with some sort of, there's some reason why those people, but that noise as well, it's like, <laughs> and the pictures go on past the end of the credits they keep going for like a while after the final credit see i loved that combination especially because um the whole approach to audio throughout this entire movie completely floored me like this uh, that actually may be my favorite thing about this whole film is the approach to audio because you have moments where it's almost like this is like white noise there are times where like the approach noise reminds me of kenneth anger's invocation of my demon brother where it's just that weird kind of beeping. And then, like, but then you'll have a moment where there's, like, a pop song, and then it cuts off to just, like, this layers of, like, military radio feedback. And it's, you know, at one point, it's like, is that the wind screaming? Is that a baby screaming? Everything is kind of mutated. And the only other film I could think of that kind of used audio and layers like that for such a guttural, kind of just like, ooh, I, you cannot get comfortable, which I love, uh, was The Exorcist, weirdly enough. I mean, I wouldn't compare the, these two films thematically, obviously, but just I love it because I think a lot of people kind of take audio for granted with film. So when you see a filmmaker actually use and it kind of, you know, use the audio aspect as much as the visual aspect, I think that's always exciting. It's a really interesting observation, actually, because I hadn't thought about it, but the way they use music as well is usually on a record player or whatever, and then it's quite often interrupted by something not pleasurable. Yeah, there's some, it's like a, a total, like, sort of sonic coitus interruptus. <laughs> like, you can't, because, you know, especially, you know, in the early section of the film where they're still kind of in civilization and there's, like, pop culture and there's, like, can you know, bright candies and burgers 
and you know everybody's kind of dressed in these nice kind of 60s 70s sort of bright colors and so and you've got the pop music that goes with that but then all of a sudden it just it cuts off there's no fading but it doesn't feel like a butt cut either it's it's like the way the way it's approached um is really exquisite it's really i can see why this film probably well, apparently a lot of his work, which is a shame, uh, doesn't probably is as well known because I find that films that really do that, other than The Exorcist, obviously, but, uh, you know, people like some discomfort, but if you go whole hog on it, a lot of people are going to just run for the hills. And that's where we come in. It's not intrusive, though, is it? It really works with the film, which is why I hadn't really noticed it until you started talking about it. It is a really big part of the film, but you're not fully conscious of it. But when they go through the tunnel, just the use of the the end of the song, it instantly tells you we've just entered a completely different dimension like what's happened here so effective with like no visuals no special effects no nothing just cutting off a song is actually genius when i think about it because <laughs> i think that's a thing I, I another thing i found striking about the use of audio is that if you were describing this you know like we are now to somebody who hasn't seen it they might in their mind they might picture everything feeling very disjointed but it's not. There's like a seamlessness. Like there's like, you know, like if this was a garment, you wouldn't even see the stitches on it. Like it's that tight and that beautifully like integrated. Um, and I find that's really rare. Of course, it's, it's hard enough to find filmmakers ballsy enough to kind of do uh, with audio what, you know, Frary's doing here. But um, it's even harder to make it <clears throat> like, excuse me, make it just have that flow. Like it's. You know, you think of experimental music, you know, smoothness and flow are not two synonyms you usually <laughs> would probably like use to describe it. This movie really took me down a rabbit hole, too. I was looking in the opening credits, and there's a reference to Richard Teitelbaum's In Tune. And so I started looking up who is Richard Teitelbaum and took me down this whole path of experimental music. And that In Tune was this whole thing that was created uh, with like a Moog synthesizer and an EEG machine. I'm just like, whoa, what, what is happening here? And just started listening to some of his work. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. So I'm like, okay, here's a whole new thing that I need to explore this whole Richard Teitelbaum connection. And I'm wondering if maybe that. That's the noises that we're hearing at the beginning. The the hum is maybe from that. But again, I'm not as familiar with what he had done to know where he comes into play. That makes sense because the whole Moog thing, uh, like with the Kenneth Anger short, like a lot of that, I think that was pretty much Mick Jagger just completely noodling on a Moog. A lot of people hate that soundtrack because <laughs> they're like, they're like, I love the images. This music is making me want to claw my eyes out. Which of course means I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, I'm <laughs> but uh, but it makes sense because there there are elements where de there's definitely like a Moog. I miss the Moog, you know. Like you could just you could get just some amazing noises from a Moog, and not not and sometimes it could be a fun danceable one, and sometimes it's like, yeah, I mean, there's small animals exploding because you just hit a note on that Moog. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to go back now and study every single sound effect in this bloody film. <laughs> You've opened the door, Heather. You've done something. Oh, I know. Like it would be. I think it would be fun as hell to do like a a real just kind of deep dive. Like because I think somebody remember Chuck telling me that. Um, I think it was in 
this book that was actually about seduction and advertising in the 70s, but they actually had a whole chapter on The Exorcist and just, they actually broke down, like, okay, this is the, when they recorded sounds from a slaughterhouse, and this is bees, and this, all of this, all of these, I'm like, God, that would be so fun to do for this film, because there is a lot going on. There's so much to unpack just within the first 10 minutes of this film, because there's the opening credits, which we were talking about. And it's like, who are these people? What's going on? Why, why are these faces here? And then we've got the woman on the uh, kind of like a newsreel, and she's talking about this yellow card, for uh, which means plague. But everybody in this cafe who's watching this seems absolutely happy and normal, nothing really bad going on. And then the the program continues and it talks about like i don't know if it's a war but they're talking about this 50-year treaty that was broken and all of these things going on and we've got our couple there just eating and having a nice chat having a nice day and the world is going on normally they go to a uh, grocery store everything seems fine there that we have an announcement of uh here's the latest pop hit by so-and-so and it's this really kind of you know bubblegum pop thing going on and it's like okay cool and then, yeah, once they get in that car and they start going, that absolutely amazing vehicle. I mean, it's like a souped-up golf it? cart or something. <laughs> it's like if Jeep made a golf cart, they would make it look like this. And, yeah, then them going through that tunnel and the world changes. And it's like, wow, even before the world ends, all of this stuff to unpack is just a, it's fantastic. Well, I love that everybody just seems so bloody blasé about the end of the world. In the first sort of time, and, and even after that, everyone's just really kind of nonchalant and unaffected <laughs> about the fact that, oh, you know, even when the couple go through the tunnel and meet this weird scene on the other side, they just don't even, it's, it's great. It's just it's got such a, weird vibe parts of it only parts of it obviously not what happens after they meet that scene at the end of the tunnel remind me a little bit of Lindsay anderson's oh lucky man and the fact that these absurd situations happen and people don't react they act like everything is completely normal and it has a bit of a vibe like that to it i think the thing i found kind of striking about dora like our main female character is that She's eating a lot of candy or she's surrounded by candy because it's like even because for like a few minutes, I thought she was just wearing some very like, like mod garment that just had these weird shiny colored bubbles on it because it's the late, you know, 60s, early 70s Italy. I think everybody dresses really nice. And then like she like she they get stopped and she's like, Oh, it's, it's ropes of candy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I know. <laughs> like draped in candy. Fashion yeah, goals. Uh, it's I, ultimate I fashion goals, isn't it? Oh, I know. I'm like, man, that's, I mean, you couldn't really do that with like a Chico stick over here. Or what? And what is going on with that sucker that she's eating? Cause it looks like I keep looking at that and I'm like, that looks like Frankenstein's head, but there's no image on it. Just the shape of it. It looks like, like the bolts coming out and all this. I don't feel like I'm reading too much into that. I'm just like, that looks like Frankenstein. That she's just gnawing on when the guys come up and they're like, hey, have some J&B because it's... Oh, yeah. Be I was really happy when the J&B came out because it's like the end of the world, but they've still got J&B. That sucker was so weird looking, though. I mean, I was, I was like, that might be the most science fiction thing in this movie is that sucker. She's so um, childlike, though, Dora. 
when you first meet her with the sweets and everything, she's like a little child. You don't really see her as this fully formed sexual woman. She's a very strange character. Yeah, no, they were definitely such a kind of almost like, I hate using this word in terms of adults, but like an innocence, you know, and they both kind of have that, but Dora more so. But also she seems like even early on, kind of retrospectively, seems to have, I think, a better gut instinct with situations than Chino, because it's like when the, you know, these, these men pull them over, one of them just meets her asking like, oh, are you a virgin? And she's looking at him like, what the, f-? like, you know, why, why are you asking me that? And it's like, and meanwhile, Chino's like, oh no, I don't have any VD. You know, like he's fine with it. With this dead person on the phone, what looks like a dead kid or a, what was that little doll thing? Was it supposed to be a child? And, and asking these questions with these bodies on the floor. And Chino's just going along with it. Like, oh yeah, this is totally normal. And this is after they've seen a bus full of dead kids. They're still driving along. They see that bus and I'm like, oh, the bus is empty. And then when they go around, it's like, oh no, here's the driver. Here's all these dead kids in here. And I'd be freaking out, and they're just like, hmm, okay, and get back on the car, and off they go. Keep eating my lolly. He's more thrilled about helicopters than he is about anything else. (laughs) I know, he is very childlike. It reminds me of, I don't know if either of you have ever seen The Good Life from British TV. It was a sitcom that ran here in the, I think, the late 70s with... Richard Bryan, Felicity, Felicity Kendall, and they, Richard Bryan decides he's going to go off and he's going to come out of the rat race and he's going to live naturally. But he just does that in a normal suburban house. And then the posh neighbors are always just think they're freaks. But he reminds, it's like the good life, extreme homes edition. He has that same, <laughs> that same almost like very naive, idealist view of the world with his plants and his little loincloth and everything he's very when you said the good life i kept thinking that sounds so familiar and then as soon as you said felicity kendall i swear to god aid edmondson's voice from the young oh, ones god. Came in, Bloody felicity <laughs> <Kendall>. <laughs> oh god it's so nice it's just so bloody the the show is is very still very it lives on in the hearts of a lot of 40 something men so anyone tuning in here from britain because of felicity kendall i mean my dad used to watch that show religiously (laughs) at the time and it's it's all about felicity kendall bless her but a similar setup the her character was a bit more wise and the and the husband was a bit of a childish dickhead to be honest he was so involved in his stupid plan to you know live the good life that his wife would often suffer so there's there's a sort of i'm not saying that marco Freire inspired the good life (laughs) (laughs) i I want to live in the world where that's true like seriously i'm just gonna lie to myself and say that's true because it's too good it would be amazing if it were true. <laughs> so the thing is, like, so we have this scenario where the, you know, our two protagonists are basically told to go off in the zone and find a house and quote unquote, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, which I love the guy has the aside of like, what a terrible saying. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. Like we have dead children and setting the dead on fire with a flamethrower. 
the, the bootstraps. And the guy's like, you've had enough fun. I know, and they take their car away. Why do they take their car away? Why are they not allowed their car? I don't, and that really upset me. I like that car, but they just kind of take their car away and give them their bags. And they're like, yeah, okay, then we'll just walk from here, like completely unaffected again. And they took their took her candy. Oh, yeah, I know. That was just rude. But yet she got she got to pick a perfume. Like I thought that was confusing. Like you can have we want you to smell good, but you lay off the sweets, honey. Though I doubt she gets to use that at all because it ends up in his museum very quickly. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about the museum. <laughs> so yeah, they find this house and the house was owned by Marco Ferreri, so he's there dead out on the front stoop and, <laughs> and there's there's graffiti on the house it says something like love philip or something like that and i'm just like i don't know what that is supposed to mean i'm trying to figure that out and they go in they're making themselves at home and there's a great um drawing of ferrari and at one point very soon thereafter uh chino is like admiring that and he decides yeah i'm gonna adapt that beard style that, that's really good that, that's for me yes <laughs> I thought it was rather sweet of, of Chino and Dora to bury the former uh, house house owner. But what cracks me up is they, they have this burial and they've got this horn. And they start just tooting on this obnoxious, me, it's re-amazing horn. And it's like, it's and they're laughing. <laughs> Which, I mean, in this universe, I guess, you know, if you grab humor where you can get it, you're surrounded by the dead and plagues. You might as well giggle over the corpse of Marco Ferrari with a horn. Which is so, like, literally the most Marco Ferrari thing ever. They still have TV for a little bit, and they get to see a news report out of Rome, it looks like, and which is... <laughs> that news report is great. Is that the one when they're being asked questions, and they're kind of like, it's none of your business? Then the Pope is there, and the Pope is like, I'm so sorry, and... <laughs> And there's like the headless Pieta, and it almost looks like miniature work when they're going over Rome, and Rome is all destroyed, and it's all in black and white. I was so glad that the Pope gets to show up in this movie. Well, he loved the Pope, didn't he, old Marco? I don't think the Pope liked him. Like, the first news report we see in the movie is that, uh, like, a blonde woman, and she's holding a large cloth doll... Yeah, that's the first face we see after all those dead faces from the, or the black and white faces from the credits. And it's just like, whoa, what is going on here? Yeah, it's this like child's doll. One of the creepiest dolls I've seen in a long time. It is fairly creepy. I just think it's all a little bit creepy. But then you get the creepy, um, jumping ahead though, the creepy mannequin people later on as well seems to be like a central theme of this film and i'm not entirely sure what it means this seems to be the theme of the episode and then this happens i'm not entirely sure what it means but it happens i know it almost seems like maybe a commentary on just i don't know the ghoulishness of facsimiles of humanity but yeah so um they find this amazing house which i feel like that's good like i feel like if that was me i'd end up finding some crack house is is like covered in old issues of jugs and empty cans of cult 45 but they find this like amazing house with this gorgeous wardrobe i think it's pretty nice i wouldn't mind living there that house is amazing and it's right by the beach as well yeah that's they got lucky i was reading about some other ferrari films and it seems like the sea is one of his big things and especially people who just kind of walk out into the ocean and kill themselves at the end <laughs> so it's like okay and i was kind of waiting for that with this but luckily that 
doesn't happen, though something else uh, miraculous happens. You get the even better ending. But there is a lot of like what the sea brings to them, and one of the first things is they think they see a dirigible, but it ends up being this huge Pepsi Cola bottle. And I love this thing, like how they're out there and they're carving SOS in the sand. Like I don't. Oh, understand it's what so they think. good. They think they're going to be saved, and it's a fucking Pepsi bottle floating and in so the happy sky. About it. <laughs> well, and they're talking you about how be? beautiful it is, and I'm like. Okay. Like a lovely piece of like floating pop art. And that it says Merry Christmas on it, so they realize what day it is or whatever. They they take it as now is Christmas. And I want to say, you know, like in a little bit, I think maybe half an hour from now, we're going to get a sperm whale that washes up on the beach. And the Pepsi-Cola bottle is really shaped very similarly. I don't think I'm reaching for that. No, it is. Obviously, it doesn't have the same connotation as the sperm whale, though. Do you think that's a little too on the nose? Yes. (laughs) In a movie called Seed of Man, that you have a sperm whale? This is Marco Freire. He didn't do subtle. He never did subtle, which is what I love about it. So I'm going to have a huge, massive, ten-ton sperm whale that just signifies everything that this film should mean. It's must have stank as well. If, if you'd really been there with a washed up, nobody comments on the smell or anything. They're just all really happy to see it. In fact, they're just really happy most of the time, or Chino is, when anything occurs. Because again, Dora, having better instincts, because he's, he's like flipping out about it. And I agree, Kat. I kept thinking about the smell too, because I'm like, God, that would you wouldn't be able to go near it. Oof, I can't only imagine how bad that would smell. Dora's line, though, sees it as this omen is incredible. I love that line. She's clearly the smarter of the two. But it's funny because then we, at some point, we have like this foreign woman show up and who ends up posing in front of the whale with, with Dora. I love that. Like, instead of posing in front of the ocean or the house or even that amazing white oxen, that poor animal, like, I felt bad for every living creature in this movie that wasn't a human being. Because, <laughs> like, the, you see a pig get hit over the head with a stick. This white oxen's just tethered to a house. It's not fun. This sperm whale's not real, but it's dead. That's sad. And, oh, there's that ghoulish fish. But it becomes a perfect metaphor, though, doesn't it, for what Chino wants to do to those women? Yeah, because it's about 40 minutes in before he finally is just like, hey, I want to have a baby. And that becomes like the through line for the entire rest of the film. It's just, I want to have a baby. And then when these strangers show up at one point who seem like they're a religious cult, the woman's got this red, blood red cross on her outfit, and they're all dressed with these dark coats. And the one guy, uh, Major uh, Devotis is his name, he reminds me of... um God, I wish I could remember the actor's name. The guy in Escape from New York with that wild hair. Where'd you get the hat? Got it from Cabby. Yeah? Traded him. For what? What are you so nervous about? You gotta see the president. Who says? The Duke. No, he doesn't. Well, I'll have to tell him you said that. Wait a minute. Why? He's got something hidden in his clothing and the Duke wants it. What? I'll show you. You'll tell me. Cyanide capsules. The Duke don't want a dead president. That guy 
Right. Both, actually, I can completely see that. Yeah, because the general or major, or generals and majors, if you're XTC, like, is so striking looking. I could be like, God, that guy, like, put him in everything with a mug like that, you know? Like, just a really effective looking person. It's even worse for Dora, though, because now Chino's already got it in his head that he's like, I want to have a child. She's clearly not comfortable with it. And then you've got these people saying, well, it's your duty. We have to repopulate the earth. Why isn't she pregnant is one of the first questions out of their mouth. Oh, yeah. They come in asking these really intrusive questions about her capacity to, <laughs> to breed and, you know, just kind of flock into this house and they're really, really intrusive. Yeah, they come in, they're just they're giving orders. They're like, hey, we like this museum you've got going here, Chino. You should be the curator of the museum. And he just takes this as like such a duty then. It's like even later on in the film, they're like, why don't we move over to this other house? And he's like, no, 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 I have to take care of the museum. Yeah, the museum that nobody visits. It's just him. Pregnancy. And to bring that up seems to be a recurring theme in the films of Marco Ferrari. It comes up in The Eight Woman. I'll try and not give any spoilers, but The Eight Woman, it's like the catalyst for the end of the film. Uh, you've got Bye Bye Monkey. It comes up in that. Uh, the Future of Woman is like a kind of weird triangle with this infertile couple and a pregnant woman. And I don't, he would often, he never really used pregnancy in a positive way. It could often lead to the end of somebody or it would cause jealousy or it would, you know, and it comes up in a few of his other films as well. They're just the ones off the top of my head where it's like a main theme, but it was never like a, a positive thing in his films Whereas kind of conventionally pregnancy is like the hope, isn't it? But for Marco Ferrari, it never was hope. It was always about destruction or more negative elements, which is really interesting. And for me in this movie, it's about choice. And Dora doesn't want to have a kid. And Gino just keeps forcing it on her and forcing it on her until he literally forces himself on her. And it's just like, dude, she's got a choice. She doesn't want to have a baby. Just leave it alone. It's this ownership, though. You get it in The, the Future is Woman, this idea of, of owning somebody's body because of their capacity to have a baby. He called himself 50% misogynist and 50% feminist. Marco Ferrari <laughs> There goes that trolling be, again. Uh, yeah, <laughs> very, very sympathetic to women. I think that's what one of the things I really love about his films, even in things like The Eight Woman. He would often show how men exploit women or how they are childish or useless or, you know, and he would show these aspects of couple culture in Italy, which was in the 60s and before that, very, very patriarchal society awash with Catholicism, like people couldn't even get divorced till 1970. And he, he, he did always seem to be on the side of the woman, or at least that's my take on his films anyway. He did seem very 
sympathetic to what women have to put up with. So I see Dora as just an extension of those other characters. She has this husband who wants her to do things. Like, it's the same with the eight woman, actually. Wants her to do things for him. And her, her place in that house becomes this object that he wants he wants her to become a breeding vessel and then when the third wheel comes in he very quickly changes allegiance because the other woman's willing to be inseminated by like that's his whole thing is just inseminating and she ceases to become a wife or a girlfriend dora Especially, you know, because like from the beginning, you you know, yeah, it's like, oh, she's this very, seems like a waif, like this childlike creature, but then she's like, she's smart. She's the main one you see gathering vegetables, gardening, killing an animal. Like she is the hunter. Oh, I love, yeah, I love how she becomes kind of more pragmatic and more of the aggressive one in the relationship whereas chino's just there with his fucking radios and his paintings and his medicinal herbs and he's a bit of a bit of a flake really isn't he well in the museum if if i can point out i love the fact that one of the first things he puts in the museum is this like seventh centuries old wheel of parmesan cheese and and dora's like maybe we should eat this which would be, I mean, yeah. And he's like, no, no, it must be put in the museum. We're going to go out to this post-apocalyptic beachside to see the 7th century's old wheel of cheese and a fridge. That third wheel woman, I do mention, is Annie uh, Girardo. He was, I talked about the ape woman because she is the ape woman who is literally an ape woman. It's wonderful. And she's also in his Dillinger is Dead as well. So she worked with him a few times. All different characters. She's like a lascivious maid in Dillinger is Dead, but she's such a wonderful actress i absolutely love her she kind of turns up out of nowhere and just imposes herself into this and you don't even know why like what why is she doing it where has she come from why is she doing this but she very quickly sort of even gets into bed with them i mostly know her as the mother from the piano teacher where she was just fantastic i mean she's such an incredible actress she really was. Uh, I particularly love her in this because she's, I don't know, like she's just so horrid. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> sad what happened to her, put it that way. We're coming up to my favorite part in the movie <laughs> with what happens to her. <laughs> One of the things I really like about him showing these people around this museum is that he's got images from 2001 A Space Odyssey on the wall, which I'm just like, wow, that's really current you know that's the year before this movie was was shot or the year that it was shot and then the uh he also has a a kodak viewmaster in his museum and i love that one of the pictures on the viewmaster is this protest picture that says murder in vietnam and it's got all these baby parts so it's like you can have this sci-fi fantasy of a better world or here's what the world really was at the time the 2001 Space Odyssey, because apparently he asked the, he went and saw it and asked his effects guy, you know, go and see yeah. it, uh, with like none of the budget. <laughs> and then right. The, and then I the want effects, effects guy, just like that. Yeah, it was like, wow, 
we haven't really got the budget. And he's like, don't make it shit then. (laughs) (laughs) And you mentioned Dillinger is dead. And I love when the one woman that's with these uh, uh, religious fanatics, let's call them, um, when she tries to steal a clock, uh, Major Devotis pulls out the same gun from... Oh, that crazy polka dot gun. It's like a gun that's painted red with little polka dots on. It's a nice little nod to himself. I think he puts these, consciously puts these little references in though, which is great. It's like the reason why everyone should just watch all of his films because they're just so connected, even though... You know, they seem to go all over the place in terms of ludicrousy. There is something there that, that binds them all together. Dillinger is Dead is the only movie of his that is readily available because that that, that came out on Criterion, I think. Yeah, it's a really sad state of affairs. I just, like I've said, I don't understand what the issue is unless it's just the fact that it's the comedy aspect and people just tend to look down on that i don't know but i know there was a box set a while ago and that goes to quite quite a lot of money now of a few of his films on dvd we saw arrow actually put out le grand booth so arrow did that a while ago and it's a lovely transfer and i was kind of hoping that would be the start of more but no nothing i don't understand it so yeah, with this third wheel, this third woman, and yeah, I love that she shows up right after the whale shows up, and uh, Dora's like, yeah, this is a bad omen, and then almost immediately, yeah. <laughs> here comes this woman with these massive sunglasses, and I was really curious, because um, it's like, almost right away, she's got this long hair, and I was like, oh wow, was she there that long for her hair to grow out? But no, it's a wig, so just kind of showing us that she's duplicitous. Yeah, her feminine wiles, just her pulling out like so, you know, a, a long, traditionally feminine hairstyle and being very sweet to Chino. She's a sneak, though, isn't she? She is a total sneak, <laughs> which is why I love her. But she's like a bit of a pantomime villain as well. When she brings it, like gets into their bed with them and she's all like, yeah, I'd have your baby. And poor Dora, who's all kind of under the covers, listening to them having sex. And at that point, you just think, fucking Chino, like, get your act together. And then the next day, she's uh, bringing up the coffee and she's got that wig on. She's all, like, dressed up like she's going to town or something. And, you know, she's just so sneaky and sly. I, I love her. Well, I love that they watch her bathe. Like, we see this woman enter the house, and then, like, the next thought, she's, like, bathing, and they're just, like, standing there. Like, okay. I'm with you completely. I love how obvious she is, because she literally, when she gets in bed, tries to give a massage to Dora. Like, like that is the classic, like, erotic film menage a trois trope, usually, of, like, ooh, you look so tense. Let me give you a massage, you know? <laughs> she's into it. But Dora's not having any of it. She's just like, uh-uh. Yeah, God, Chino's really, you know, poor Chino, because, like, the more I think about it now, more I'm like, man, fucking Chino. Like- he is, he's a, such a sap. It's a thing that tends to come up in Marco Ferreri films, though, that people are, or men, sorry, not people. <laughs> saps. Um, like, one of my favorite films by him is The Man with the Balloons 
where Marcello Mastriani stars is this guy who becomes obsessed with how much air he can put into a balloon and he wants to discover the perfect point to fill a balloon before it bursts and his girlfriend or his fiance is Catherine Spack and he totally ignores her all the way through the thing because he's just obsessed with this fucking balloon and you're just like put the fucking balloon down but he reminds me of Chino this like obsession men often get obsessions in his films and they become very self-destructive obsessions like the the grand booth is basically four guys go to a house to eat themselves to death it's absolutely glorious but that is their plan they're just they're just so bored they're going to eat themselves to death so i see that uh that connection between chino and some of his other characters Chino's on the sweeter end of the scale. Some of them are sweet and some of the guys that he has aren't so sweet. They're a bit nastier and more. But even Dillinger is dead is totally about obsession, self-destructive obsession. I don't want to say what it's about. That she ends up giving him a pacifier as a gift. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. But the sweets, as I mentioned, this is... Oh my god, the swerve that that we get with this. I was clapping. I was like, oh my god, yes, because yes, yeah, so we have her and I love that she puts she she puts her wig on a tree because she doesn't want to get her wig dirty, I realize now. And even though that's no way to treat a hat, ma'am. Do not put your nice wig on a tree. Come on. But she ends up trying to bone. Not <laughs> wrong choice of words after talking about menage a trois. I'm sorry. She tries to brain Dora with like a bone and Dora who, you know, you know, Dora up to this point, other than beating the pig, you're just like, Oh no, poor Dora. And Oh my God. No, Dora turns into the toe badass. She beats the shit out of her. She strangles her to death. And what I love, because, like, you know, in a Hollywood movie, or even, like, I think in an American movie, you would have Dora have, like, a freak out, like, oh, my God, I killed somebody. No, she's kicking the body. She's like, oh, then when she goes in for the bitch. kick, he's like, you just want to cheer? Because <laughs> prior to that, she sat there kind of meditating with her little wind chime, and this horrible interloper just whacks her on the head. <laughs> Oh my god, she... And then uh, you think, it can't get any better. Like, this is... Dora is so awesome. She grabs an axe, and I'm like, oh shit, this is... Is this about to go, like, Miss 45? Like, what is she about to do? She hacks the woman's leg off, fucking cooks it, and serves it to Chino. Oh that The dinner scene is one of my favorite things in Italian film ever. Just the way she serves up that fucking leg to cheat an unsuspecting Chino is like, oh, this meat is so tender. What is it? <laughs> She's just like, just eat it. And I, I, you yes. just think, go Dora. This may be my favorite Italian cannibal movie now. It's great, isn't it? It's one of those things like you don't want to give it away, but I've always like kind of, well, you should check out the work of Marco Ferrari, like you. <laughs> You want to see some really interesting cannibalism? I mean, this is another one of his themes. Yeah, he uses it in a few films. But eating in general as well has a massive significance in his films. Like like I said, Le Grand Booth, but people having lavish dinners and just a whole thing of eating and consumption seemed to be like a huge thing for him. He was a larger man and I think he liked his food, but he used it 
in his films. I think it was Claude Chabrol said in an interview once about some directors who like to feed their actors and others don't. Like Claude Chabrol loved to feed his actors. Set me on this thing of thinking about directors you like to feed. So it's something I'm really weirdly interested in. I might do a book on it one day. (laughs) I've got an outline somewhere. Manja! Ferrari definitely liked to feed his actors and it always had some whenever you see people eating films it always has some sort of symbolism and for him I I don't know like what the the symbolism always differed but it was always very significant when it came up sometimes it's like a purification and in this one it just feels like it's a total revenge thing which I absolutely love nobody who makes pate this good can be all bad that's a really good point, especially because we see eating becomes kind of even more prevalent throughout where we keep seeing them like having like this ricotta and, you know, like Dora eating the ricotta with her hands. I love like because they get to another house and she's like, I want to stay here. And he's like, oh, I'm the museum. And she's eating and she's like, fine, go. And I'm like, yes, girl, like go let him have fun with this like seven centuries old wheel of cheese. And you stay in this cool place. It's really interesting, though, because they're supposed to, like, kind of be living off the land and all this, but they don't seem to be without, which is another interesting thing. They never seem to be without anything. In fact, they seem to live this, apart from the interlopers and the weird strangers you burst in, this quite idyllic existence. So they suddenly inherit this really bourgeois house and all these beautiful things and they seem to have a abundance of food which is interesting you'd expect it's like the opposite to how you'd expect dystopian sci-fi like we did last august at the hotel ozone it's like the antithesis of that nobody's struggling they seem to have an abundance of everything yeah and at least the cow makes it out alive in this movie I was worried about that because anytime you see like a live animal in seventies cinema, you know, especially uh, oxen and cows don't fare too well in this decade. And that one, I was like, thank God, you know. Yeah, end of August at the Ozone Hotel. Oh, it is not good for animal lovers. Ferrari loved animals, though, didn't he? He was a vet, or he trained to be a vet. But animals seem to play a really important part in his films as well, especially in like the Ape Woman and Goodbye Monkey. You've got a guy adopting a chimp, and then you've got the significance of the whale in this. They just seem to come up time and time again as well. And there's that weird thing when they are moving to this other house and the whale, it's in the background, but you can see what looks like all these seagulls on it. And then a little bit later, uh, Chino's like, oh, the plague is over, the plague is over. And I was just like, okay, what does that mean? But I think it's like the whale has been stripped of all of its meat and now it's just the bones. And now you have this huge whale skeleton on the beach, which was just like, wow, that's actually really cool. That's an awesome prop. The whole thing's awesome, though. I, You have that. It's the same in Goodbye Monkey, where you have a giant ape. That, yeah, it's like King Kong has fallen off the World Trade Center before De, De Laurentiis did it. Yeah, so it's like, you know, it's just this huge, massive animal. And that whale, it looks far bigger than an actual whale as well, which I'm sure is deliberate. Goodbye Monkey was after the Dino De Laurentiis um, 
uh, King Kong. My bad. Marco Ferri did everything, though. I won't accept that. He did everything first. <laughs> Deserves to be recognized for this. <laughs> I just, I don't want any of those, you know, King Kong heads coming after me. But, you know, corrections. God, they're worse than Ghostbuster fans. <laughs> oh, I know, <laughs> right? Like, the flame wars will start and we'll just never survive. Oh, God. Don't make King Kong a woman. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, get so mad. We're like, not my King Kong. You killed my childhood. Hashtag. <laughs> Hashtag. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. You're going to have an SJW ape now. Oh, right. Here yes. comes the reviews on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Mike, I, you're, you get so political on this show. I liked Mike until he got so political about the ape from King Kong. <laughs> good and then you just ruined it all with politics <laughs> just so political now you've just ruined it plus i'm men bashing again as well which i got told off for on the rosemary's babies episode i was being too mean to guy and now i'm being mean to chino it's like i'm a horrible person chino deserves it man. if you're if you're a man listening to this and you're like these women are mean to chino Yes, <laughs> but I kind of like Chino, but I but then he fucks somebody in bed with Dora, and I like Dora more. So, yeah, and his bloody cheese and his museum and everything. Well, she's actually out doing stuff, <laughs> but he's he's also kind of sweet, weirdly endearing as well, in in a, in a strange way. But but also entirely useless apart from all he wants to do is inseminate this woman and then you think what's going to happen if, if he inseminates her she's just going to be left doing everything well he carries on cataloging grass or making that weird art project out of all the plastic people from the uh the second house oh yeah i'll p- take all these plastic people and put them here by the whale skeleton mm-hmm. No, I would agree. I mean, Chino, through a good chunk of the movie, I I liked him, and I was like, yeah, because he has he does have sort of this like almost naivete about him. But as the film goes on, yeah, the, you know, yeah, if you're gonna have sex with somebody that's not your partner, don't do it next to them. I know, in the <laughs> same like, bed. It's just so, but yet still, you kind of feel sympathetic for him. It's weird. The more he kind of pushes her, though, it's kind of like, wow, you, you really don't see her as a person, you know, and that's, that's problem, problematic. I hate that word, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah, she's uh, just a vessel for him to, he, she's a field for him to plant a seed. But on top of that, even though Dora doesn't really say it explicitly, the whole time I really, and maybe this is me putting my own projection on this, is I really get the feeling she's, probably like why would i want to bring a kid into this world like look at everything we've seen look at everything that humanity has made a mess of on this planet like why why would i want to bring a child just to see them die on a bus or have their corpse burned alive in a field by a bunch of you know jaded officers for chino though it's all about him being the savior of mankind isn't it it's it's Mm -hmm. all about his ego and him, like, like he's the chairman or the curator of this museum that nobody will ever visit. It's, it's all about him and all about his v- ego, which is another reason why he's a bit shitty. <laughs> and I don't think he would be happy with just one baby. It sounds like he wants, you know, 100, 200 million babies. Yeah, when he's going on about sperm numbers. Oh. <laughs> I just pictured a bunch of babies with that Amish beard. 
<laughs> I mean, he's so shitty that he ends up slipping her a Mickey, and we have kind of an echo of the former dining scene with a new dining scene where he's feeding her and ends up drugging her and then has sex with her. And it's like, okay, yeah, that, you know, to your early point, that's problematic uh, that we have this essentially a rape going on in this movie. And then he's super happy when she's nauseous the next day or a few days later. And he's just like, I know why you're nauseous. You're pregnant with my baby. And just him going fucking ape shit on the beach, running around and touching her stomach and going 100, 2 million babies. I've inseminated you. I've inseminated you. He's just like going fucking crazy. Well, and you know, there's like the repetition of like Dora going into like a crouching position, almost like a scared animal. Cause she does that earlier when like the group of like black clad sort of cult members or government members or, or whoever are there. She does that same thing. Right. And the, and the major comes over and throws this coat over her and then she seems to recover from it. But yeah, it's the exact same crouching position that she gets in while he's running around like a maniac screaming about how he inseminated her. Inseminato. Inseminato. <laughs> but this comes up to, I think, what may be one of the best climaxes I've seen in, in recent, it, well, maybe in any film I've ever seen. I had to rewind this three times. It's amazing. It really is amazing. It's like you can imagine the script. How are we going to finish this then? Well, I want the movie to end with a big explosion. I mean, not since Forbidden Zone. Have I seen a better use of explosions to end a movie? Because that's you, how else, right? How I mean, else? yeah, I, I picture Ferrari typing on the on the uh, paper, you know, in Italian, and then they explode. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so good, and you don't even get end credits. It's no. like it's just they explode. Then we get a minute of just sort of white noise mixed in with natural sounds, which is kind of all throughout, again, oh my god, the audio in this film's amazing. And then that's it. And you're just sitting there with your jaw hanging open going, okay. (laughs) They exploded. It's great, though. It is so good. The white smoke just going along the beach. Yeah. I remember, I still remember the first time I saw it just being like, whoa, what did I just watch? <laughs> what was that? I think such an ending would make bad films better. Because, like, I think if Terms of Endearment had ended with, like, the whole cast exploding, I would have been like, wow, that movie was boring, but that ending was um, was brilliant. That was such a good ending. Yeah, you tell me that all the little women explode at the end. I'm watching Greta Gerwig. <laughs> yes, I would be yes. in the theater right now. Hell yes. <laughs> we sound like the, remember that SCTV? Kat, I don't know if you ever got to see this um, Canadian-American show from the 80s called SCTV. It was like a comedy sketch show, but they, they had these two guys that were movie reviewers, and they would rate movies on how many explosions they had. But I'll tell you a film I did like. Werner Rainer Fastbinders, the third generation. I like that one a whole lot. A whole bunch of people got blowed up good, and that one blowed up real good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I personally don't like uh, too many of those films coming out of Europe, but I'll tell you, I do have a favorite director over there, and that's Michelangelo Antonioni. Oh, yeah. You see that movie, is a brisky point? Yeah. You remember how it ended? Yeah, everything at the end blowed up. <laughs> blowed up good. Blowed up real good. Real good. <laughs> yeah. You know that one movie he made, though, I didn't like was Blow Up. No, I didn't like that neither. Nothing blowed up in it. I don't know why they call a movie Blow Up and nothing blows up. No. I, I got my money back on that one. Well, I don't blame you. This would definitely have a 10 out of 10. Let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back with an interview with Nicoletta Ercole, the 
producer of La Lucida Folio de Marco Ferreri, also known as Marco Ferreri, Dangerous But Necessary. It is a 2017 documentary about Ferreri. I highly recommend it. Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. This is going to be a short interview. Uh, Ms. Ercole gets uh, a little busy, uh, or at least her house gets a little busy towards the end. So uh, just uh, be patient and enjoy. Hi. I'm Steven Seagal. That's right, Steven Seagal. And for the past 40 years, in between barbecue and oxen and roasting boar for my insatiable appetite, I never miss an episode of Dr. Action and the Kick-Ass Kid commentaries. Ain't that right, Johnny? Hi, I'm Dr. Action. Hi, and I'm the Kick-Ass Kid. When I'm not watching action films, I'm usually polishing my gum while looking at a back. And when I'm not watching action films, I'm normally outside with a harpoon killing puppies. But usually, you can find us both watching 80s, 90s action films. You could follow us on Twitter, Dr. Action Kick-Ass. You can find us on our main page, which is dractionkickass.blogspot.com. You can also find us on iTunes and TalkShoe. Yes, every week we do a commentary on an 80s and 90s action classic, and where we can, we also provide the film so that you can watch along with it. This podcast explodes. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at twilightzone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. You know, the girl from that... The, yes, the, yes, I the know show exactly. on that... God, I know exactly um, who you're talking about. She has the hair. The the hair was it, it was different, and she has the the, the, the lips. She has the lips with the okay. Yeah, wait, she, no, she was just okay. You've seen her a million movies. You know, but, who the, but the one that, we're talking about the exact same person. We don't always suck as bad as this, but listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. I would love to know a little bit more about you and especially how you got into costume design and into the uh, Italian film industry. So I started in the beginning of uh, 1970, uh, 72 exactly. All my life I loved fashion and cinema and costumes. And uh, when I was really young uh, with my best friend, uh, Barbara Mastroianni, the daughter of Marcello Mastroianni, all the, the Saturday evening in the, in the villa, villa of Mastroianni, so, uh, on the Appia, uh, in Rome, 
uh, we rented um, the the two film two movies that we really loved Gatto Pardo uh, by Visconti and uh, Gone with the Wind because the costume to the period was so fantastic and we loved it so we start to make some drawing you know and uh, uh, and as soon as we finished the school I I start to work as assistant uh, for free, of course, as PA with some costume designer. And one of those was the best costume designer in the world, Piero Tosi. That just two years ago, the Academy Awards gave to him the Academy, the Oscar, took the career because it's really the best costume designer, the teacher of some of us as uh, Milena Canonero, as Gabriella Pescucci, and some other costume designers. So uh, I discovered the, the show business, and I can't, uh, I can't live it anymore. I can't, I can't live without it. I guess I can't live because uh, it's really my life. So then, in the I start to. My first American movie was in the 1976 uh, in Los Angeles and San Diego. It was a, considered a B-movie. For me, it was a Z movie, <laughs> not B-movie, because it was, was really awful. You know, the story was just after Joe's by Spielberg, and it was called Tentacles. The director was an Italian-American, uh, Oliver Hellman, and uh, the the <laughs> the star, the talent was great because John Huston, Henry Fonda, <laughs> Charlie Winters, Claude Aikens, Bill Hopkins, was so fantastic. And I was just uh, 22 years old, and I was really I I can't understand why they just called me because I was the only one in Italy. That speaks English, so <laughs> that was really great because the uh, the one of the producer was Peter Shepard, a, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine. Uh, that then is dead, unfortunately, uh, many years ago, and so he. Oh, yeah, Italian because it was a Italian American production, so you know. The production must be half and half. And uh, the voice of costume designer was empty because the costume designer that they chose was uh, didn't speak it very good English. And so I started to work. And that time, when I came back, I met Marco Ferreri. There was uh, preparing a great movie with Marcello Mastroianni and Gerard Dupardier. It's called in America. It's called Bye Bye Monkey, and uh, in France uh, it's called um, Red de Sange. In Italian, Ciao Maschio. So the, we started shooting in New York, and then we came back in Rome in Cinecittà, and and from that movies I never left Marco, and Marco never left me. And after the when he died, uh, his wife who was one of my best friends, Jacqueline. She was uh, Afro Canadian, Afro French, uh, and we try for all 
the last period of Jacqueline's life to keep very fresh the remembers of Marco Ferreri because he anticipated really a lot of things. Uh, for instance, if you see the movie with Christopher Lambert, Christophe Lambert, uh, I Love You, the, he's, he's anticipated what is the, the virtual love. You know what I mean, the virtual love, because it was um, a key holder, it was a, a little doll, in Italian we call portachiavi, that say if you call her it, she answer, she answer, I love you. And uh, he, he fell in love with this, these things, you know. This movie was 40 years ago. So it's incredible. It's an, it was really the, the man of the future, the director of the future. What was it like to work with Mr. Ferrari? It was great because you can, you know, it's completely different. When I work with Americans, you know exactly what you have to do. You know exactly the script, you know, and the breakdown, and you know exactly uh, what we are going to do. With Marco, was an happening to always an happening because <laughs> I, I teach her to my assistant to say, if you want to uh, work with me and with Marco Ferreri, you have to preview what is unpreview. <laughs> it's, it's impossible to think that what you, you have done, we are going to make it. So you have to be free and able to do everything he has he asked to the to us you know who was a really very amusing very um, very exciting uh, very exciting i love the work that you did on um, story uh, of piera the story of piera yeah the way that you used costumes to help uh, age the actresses through so many different times this is what I really uh, uh, a bond, you know, because uh, Isabelle Fair was great in that movie. It's really great because you know how she changed at the beginning. She looks like uh, a teenager, 12, 13, then uh, like 30 and then 40. And uh, I laughed because uh, uh, we start with the 50s and then the 60s, and then the 70s, and uh, and we finish in the 80s. And also, Hannah Shigula was so great in that movie. I really loved to wear her with crazy things, you know, because she was so crazy. She was so unusual. Uh, she was a um, transgressive woman. So we put together a lot of styles of uh, period costumes and mixed together like a miscellaneous. <laughs> I love this. Yes. How was it uh, working on uh, Como Sone Buono e Bianchi? All of the, the, the global costumes that you had to work on, especially the, the African costumes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's <laughs> that was so uh, funny because uh, Renato Salvatori, maybe you don't know who he was. He was a great actor, the, one of the favorite actors of Lucchino Visconti, uh, and 
he knew if, if not the fabric, how you say, in French, on the usine, comme si tu fabric, oh, bah, okay, um, a great place, not so far from Rome, that they sell all the fabrics of the African fabrics. And so I've been there, I got a lot, of, a lot of materials, and then I worked, I break it down, I, I make, I call a major, uh, with me to make it age, uh, age uh, oldest, you know, what I mean, to ruin it, to leave, to leave the material like, uh, like, uh, an old piece of material. And that we made all the costumes because we didn't know all these people because uh, all the people that you see in the movie, Marco Ferreri asked to the governor of Mauritania, one passport for all those people, 250 persons. So uh, I prepare all this in Italy, and then I've been in uh, Agadir, in uh, Morocco, and I, I called the Moroccan people that helped me to make, to, to break, a, to break it down. To, to make them old, older, you know what, uh, uh, what I mean. Right. We would tend to say, uh, to distress the materials, to age them. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. How did the, uh, documentary about Mr. Ferreri come about? For me, half of my professional life, it belonged to Marco because he teach me a lot of things. He teach me to work, uh, in something, you know, that uh, it's not decided from the beginning. This is very exciting from, you know, uh, to create, to create my work, our work. It's a work, uh, it's a, cre- it's, it's the most important thing is uh, to create this artistic work. So if you can do anything, you know, you're so happy. So I decide that, uh, in the, in, the, in, uh, in 2017, it was 20 years that Marco was dead. And I said, mm, a lot of people forget it, uh, forgot him. The young people, you know, so they must to see, to watch now her cinematography because it's something so incredible modern, incredible uh, up-to-date, you know. And that's why I decided to do this. I choose this uh, friend of mine, it was Selma Deloria, she's American-Italian, uh, now she's a journalist, but that time was uh, a poor woman in New York <laughs> that I discovered. And so I asked to, to Selma, what do you think? You feel that you can do a movie about Marco, I mean, a docu film about him. I help you. I know all, all almost all it's um, belong to Marco. Let's try. And I must say the truth. Roberto Benigni was the first. Roberto and I we are very friend. And I said to Roberto, "What do you think if I I involved in this? I don't know because I have no money. I have to, you know." Uh, and Roberto said, if you want, I can help you. I don't want you to help me because otherwise I feel, you know, I want to do in a normal way. 
And uh, he said, no, you have to. And I will be in the movie. Okay, darling. And it's incredible because, unfortunately, you can't understand really uh, what he says in the poem that uh, he made for Marco. Or you can understand it. Yeah, I watch it with the subtitles. It's it's a fantastic poem. Yeah, 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 but it's incredible. In Italian, it's something, it's really something very special because, you know, it's a, it's a lot, all uh, something that, you know, is typical of Marco and, and was really typical of that period. In that period, all the most important uh, directors was Fellini, Ferreri, Bertolucci. So it was a, a kind of strange war between between them, you know? <laughs> so it's very amusing. This wasn't your first documentary. You made one on, on uh, Mr. Ferretti as well, correct? Yes, yes, I, 10 years ago. Uh, with, with Dante, it was the same thing. Um, the title is uh, uh, Dante Ferretti Scenografi Italiano. It means Dante Ferretti uh, production, Italian production designer. And uh, also that one, because in that period, I decided to uh, tell what the so excellent uh, artist, Italian artist, and was a, a, like a collier <laughs> that begin, uh, begin with Dante, because Dante is, what, is my best friend. We start together. We've been in America together. We have the same agent in Los Angeles. You know, we start all our, and Dante is uh, it's, um, older than me. But anyway, we start, uh, we work together a lot. And so we decide to go in uh, in LA together and da 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 da. And uh, I think he's really a genius. I think it's so great. It's a big act, uh, uh, artist, really, really. And so I start with him. And but in this collier <laughs> was involved uh, one with Marco uh, with Dante Ferretti. The other one was uh, Dante Spinotti. You know, Dante Spinotti is one of the best light, uh, uh, it's like, um, uh, oh, oh my God. It, it was Dante Ferretti, Milena Canonero, Dante Spinotti, um, Pietro Scalia, the editor, you know, and Ennio Morricone. Those was, should be the, the, the five most important talent and artists, Italian artists. How did you decide to uh, work with Selma de Ori, del Olio uh, as a as a director for this? Was this her first time directing a documentary? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, it's incredible. And now she's making another movie. Another producer, a friend of mine, called her to make another um, another movie, a docu film that's about Fellini. It's incredible, huh? I just, a star is born, a star is born. <laughs> As you can hear, I'm in the country, in the middle of the country with a dog. In this. So just in case I'm going to make another one, I will call you to tell you what is about it. I know because I have an idea and start just the prep, not the prep, but the pre-prep. Uh, and it could be something very interesting, very interesting because I'm sure that you like it because it's yeah, about the four most important 
artists of cinema uh, and opera and uh, theater uh, in the last 50 years in Italy. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful talking with you. Really? My English is awful, darling. I lost... uh, Oh, yeah. Your English is much better than my Italian. I, I, it was uh, <laughs> by the twenty-five years ago. It's a very ago. easy answer. It's a very easy answer. Everybody says it. <laughs> All right, we were back and we were talking about the seeds of man and still trying to recover from that ending. Oh my God! Please, I'm hoping that we're we're doing this episode almost as like a ritual act of magic, where like some really great company is going to be like, you know what, Cat and Mike are right. Let's get all of these films on Blu-ray get them remastered, get them out in the public. Because think about it, Ape, like that horrible 70s movie, Ape, like it's like A asterisk P asterisk E where the gorilla flips flips off the camera and that's literally the best part of the movie. That is on Blu-ray. That is on Blu-ray. Seed of Man is not on Blu-ray. Fucking Dracula 2000 is probably out on Blu-ray. This is not. That is not right. No, it's not right. We do need more Marco Ferrari. We definitely need more Marco Ferrari. I just think a lot of it is because he's underseen, I guess. People don't tend to make the effort to track his films down. Or, you know, you have that kind of snobbery as well. He wasn't somebody who kind of played into the whole auteur thing or played up to the critics. He just did his own thing, and he was such a fucking troll as well, amazingly, which I love. So he's kind of cast out of that inner circle of masters, but I rate him right up there. Um, With Elio Petri as well, he was another one who kind of got pushed out. He didn't play the game either. I think both of those, they went, were seen as going a little bit too far because they weren't... You know, they were critical of everything. They weren't necessarily on one side or the other. And it's just, I just find it so frustrating, so fucking frustrating that, I don't know, I guess home video companies see sell things that they know will sell. It's like Marco Ferrari isn't really a quote-unquote name, is he? So... They're still making movies about this guy, and he even shows up in that uh, Godard Mon Amour. Um, actually, there's a scene of them shooting Seeds of Man in that. So he's a known entity in some circles, but it's I would like him to be known in a much larger circle. Yeah, he's totally a known entity in, in the more like art house circles, but for whatever reason, he's not seen as as marketable as someone like Fellini or Antonioni or Pasolini or, you know, he's not in that top tier. But there's so much of that in Italian films, especially from the 60s, especially in Italian comedy. There's just, it's a real wealth of incredible film. A lot of it satire-based that just remains languishing in fan-subbed limbo because nobody wants to take that chance and put it out there you brought up a really really good point that i don't think i don't know if a lot of people really think about it 
But there are genres of film that just historically always get ignored by critics. And with that respect, you know, having kind of like a serious respect for them. And comedy has always been right next to like erotica and horror as far as being treated. Well, it's like it's even one step below horror in a way, even though those two genres are just so closely connected. And they're both genres that explore things like culture and society and fears and anxiety that uh, horror tends to have a community whereas comedy's just i don't know it's out there isn't it there are there are very few comedic directors that have actually made it like billy wilder preston sturgis charlie chaplin you know but outside of that it's like comedy scene is the redneck cousin people don't seriously do comedy like i seriously do comedy but People rarely do. They're like not interested or they, it hasn't got the prestige, has it? That something like Art House or even genre film has. That's never made sense to me because I think it's definitely harder to find something that makes somebody laugh than it is to make make them sad. It's like anybody could make a movie about, you know, oh, here's this, this kid, this sad kid, he's dying and there's a dead dog or whatever, you know, and people are like, oh, my God, because you're human. I mean, anybody that has empathy, I mean, e- even if the movie's shit, you don't want to see it. You don't like thinking about people being hurt or anything like that. But, you know, that's automatically – I always joke that, like, Oscar bait films always have somebody yelling out, my baby's dead! My baby's dead! Apparently they're all Southern. But you know what I mean? Like, that automatically critics will be jizzing in their pants. Like, oh, my God, we have to give this all the Oscars. But meanwhile, you can have a film that is, like, an exquisitely made comedy. and is just taken for granted. Like making people smile is viewed as cheap for whatever reason. Same kind of same with like porn and erotica, like turning somebody on is, Oh, that's cheap. But exploiting them emotionally is that's fine. Emotional pornography is fine, but goddamn, don't make them laugh or give them a boner. Cause then it's forget. And comedy has such a wealth of like, it carries like from a cultural perspective, such a wealth. If you really start, I wrote this essay last year on, on the buses, which is like, a semi-serious essay and everyone's like why would you do this <laughs> but it's like on the bus has got so much amazing context with ferrari's making films some of his most important films anyway in the 60s and the 70s where you have this incredible politically charged climate in italy it's violence you've got well even talking of the year 1969, like around the world, 1968, 1969, the whole thing is kicking off. And you see that in Italian comedy, the way that they discuss or explore aspects of Italian society and how it's changing. And Marco Ferrari was very, very good at that. He was always looking forward to what does this mean? Where will we end up? And Cedar Man's probably one of the best films that he does that in because he proposes this strange future to us that, you know, some things change, but some things stay the same. So he was really interesting. I think the comedies of that that period really tell us a lot about what was going on because it's the the one genre where you can be as absurd as you want and as abstract as you want. And you can take on really subversive subjects. You can be very political. Um, so 
I just don't get it. I just don't get why people ignore this stuff. They tend to get him mean, it's a comedy, you know? Unless it's like Lou Bitch or someone. They don't want to know. Charlie Chaplin. They don't want to know. So I'm ranting now, but it's a subject I feel really, really passionate about. I was shopping around a book on Italian comedy for a couple of years. Like, no publisher would touch it. They just don't see a market. And I think people should watch these. They're just so a wealth of rich context and just amazing and really ludicrous, some of them. People like to be more, like Heather said, more on the dramatic end. And it's like, you know, do you want to watch the marriage story? No, thank you. I don't want to watch three hours or something, people getting divorced. I want to watch Marcello Mastriani trying to blow up fucking balloons. Thank you. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. Can we put that as a byline on something? I want to read that book. I mean, that's that's the thing is like, it's a struggle. I think a lot of us film, you know, writers and podcasters uh, go through is that, you know, we're all kind of fighting this uphill battle for exposure and respect and preservation for a lot of artists that people are like, oh, we don't see the money in it. And on one hand, I mean, it's a business. We get that. We understand that. But on the other hand, it's like, you're kind of fighting for history. Like, we're fighting for something. I mean, think about it. This film now is still as relevant in 2020 as it was when it came out in a lot of ways. I mean, right? Absolutely. Or even more so. Even more so, seeing as we're now like two minutes to midnight. Well, and you still, you know, there's still fight over like women's bodies and reproductive rights. You know, plagues, as Mike, you mentioned, the coronavirus, you know, the nuclear threat's always hanging over. I feel like that's never ended. So this is like, this is art, and it does need to be put out there. And I mean, you know, if the Royal Tenenbaums can get a nice release, then surely to shit, this should be getting... (laughs) (laughs) I like the Royal Tenenbaums. Am I the only one? What is that? (laughs) Maybe the only one on this podcast. I know it's a horribly pretentious film, but I... I don't know. I like it because of Gene Hackman. I do love Gene Hackman. If they had blown up at the end, I would love it. <laughs> Especially when it's all true. Do a whole series of films that would be better if the people blew up at the end. <laughs> We're going to go all Zabriski point on this. Come on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Actually, every Gwyneth Paltrow movie should have ended with her blowing up. <laughs> or maybe started that way. Yes. Yeah, that way we don't have to deal with 90 minutes of her. <laughs> we'll make sliding doors so much better. Imagine if at seven, when he opens, he opens, he's like, what's in the box? And he opens the box and it explodes. And it's <laughs> Isn't this a wonderful thing about Marco Ferrari, though? This is what his work does. It, like, inspires people. <laughs> into the these really absurd realms but he is just i find him very inspiring even though a lot of his films end on these really nihilistic notes they never feel like downbeat or kind of like you know like when the explosion happens at the end of cedar man you're like fuck yeah that's like the best (laughs) explosion i've seen in my life like the meaning of it is like everything's gone there's no point to this you know what was the point but you don't feel like that and that happens with a lot of his films that have really kind of nihilistic endings you know have castration endings you have cannibal endings you have people dying in childbirth endings you you know you just have these things but you never walk away from Marco Ferrari just feeling like 
ugh, you know, like some of those films and the big meaningful end. You you normally walk away like, wow. <laughs> you just nailed something for me about this film is that, I mean, even now, I mean, this film is heavy and we're dealing with a lot of grim things, but you're right. It doesn't, you don't feel, I mean, there's some films that are brilliant, but they're so intensely depressive and dark that you're kind of like, you need to watch, you know, like, like I'm going to go watch some Mighty Python or something now and try and recalibrate. And with this one, it almost reminds me of watching like some of Hordorowski's films where it's like there's heaviness and they're two very different filmmakers. But um, the horror rescue would go on to use uh, a man building a woman out of stone and trying to make love to that, which is kind of a nice parallel to Chino's sand woman. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's like a respect for the audience. There's a love. I don't know. There's like, there's some, there's something here. I don't know. You guys have definitely like as sort of the neophyte on this to Ferrari on this episode. I'm, I want to go see everything he's made just between like hearing you, Kat and Mike, hearing you guys talk about it, but also just this film alone. Cause I like Tales of Ordinary Madness, but it didn't make me, it didn't push me like this one has. Yeah. His best periods are really his earlier periods and in the seventies are like his two best periods. Like there's value in, in all of his work, but it's like his peak is like he's totally on peak with Seeds of Man. Like after Dillinger is dead, which is like his first kind of experimental film. He started to really play around with stuff. So then you got Seeds of Man was like the, I don't know if they were made the same year, I think even, or released mm-hmm. the same year. Very, very close together. And then he did things like Liza as well, where Marcello Mastriani and Catherine Deneuve, who were together at the time, live on this island together. And she kills accident. This isn't a spoiler. This is the synopsis. If you look the film up, she accidentally kills his dog. And to me- no, I think she purposely kills it. Anyway, the dog gets killed and she replaces the, willingly replaces the dog and lives as his dog. And that is a fucking crazy film. Another one sat on the speech. They're in isolation. It's like he'd like to put people in isolation into these like little the uh, grand booth. They go off to uh, some villa in the middle of nowhere where they're just kind of cut off. Uh, what was that later one with the about the cannibal? I can't remember the name of it, but that's kind of set in isolation. Yeah, he liked to do that as well, I think, just to see how people interacted with each other. And he put them in these ludicrous uh, positions and he'd see how things played out. But to go to Heather's point, the few people that have written about Ferrari, they often put him together with Hodorowski and Louis Buñuel with the connection to the theatre of the absurd. Because there are there is like a spiritual connection between those three. I think more of a connection to Buñuel in terms of humour. Like Buñuel is one that you got away with comedy actually, and he gets onto Criterion. But I think Marco Ferrari just got too weird f- for the uh, the arty critics. And like you said, he loves to take the piss out of people. So he does. <laughs> he was basically antagonistic with the critics. So. Which you don't do. That was Elio Petri's downfall as well. They kind of loved him. And then he went off to win his Oscar with Citizen Above Suspicion. And then he kind of did uh, all the working class go to heaven where he criticized the left and right. And that was it. They just fucking turned on him. 
I mean, poor Eddie O'Petri by the 80s, just before he died, because he died quite young of a heart attack. He'd just given up. He didn't want to make any more films just because of the way the critics had treated him. And I think Marco Ferreri became similarly disillusioned by the end, which is kind of sad. And he was making movies all the way up until, I'm going to say, mid-90s, right before he passed away. Yeah, and he he was, well, no, semi-young. He was didn't quite make it to 70, did he? But but I think his, his last period, he has more of a cynical attitude, whereas in his earlier films, you get this sense of fun. Even in something like Cedar Man, which we're talking about, it's like a very nihilistic, dystopian film, but we're laughing all the way through it. Even though it's not consciously a comedy, it's just it's just so weirdly life affirming to watch a film like that. <laughs> it's not like last August, the late August at the Hotel Zone, which is equally brilliant, but you come out of that film devastated. You're just kind of like, oh my god! <laughs> right. It took a lot for me to rewatch late August, but with this one, I happily rewatched Seeds of Man. It's so good. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping, like, anybody that listens to this this episode who is not familiar with this film will definitely, I mean, we hope that with all episodes, but, but oh my gosh, yeah, this film needs to be championed to the hillside. They all do. They all do. They're just all so absolutely wonderful. I know one person who does really champion Ferrari is our mutual friend, Heather Brad. Stevens, who actually met Ferrari, but he's the man to talk to about Ferrari because he actually met him and interviewed him. But I rarely come across people that have the, who, who champion him as much. Brad being one of the ones who really, you know, he knows all about the different cuts and everything. It's like the Oracle. Brad's great. Anybody listening to this hasn't read anything by Brad Stevens, check him out. Brad's one of the best. Yeah, here's hoping that he makes uh, Ferrari his next book subject. That would be wonderful, especially if he's got interview material, because it, there just needs to be something out there. And it's just really sad that there's there's not. There's this just big gap. Or you read things on online, and it's basically people just don't get it. They just don't understand it. So people saying bye-bye monkey is boring. It's like, you fucking say that? What is wrong with you? Gerard Depardieu adopts a chimp, for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah, well, and it actually, um, I still need to see it. That's one's been on my want list for a long time. The main actress in it, um, I think she's credited as Gail Lawrence. She was actually uh, a golden age of erotica actress under the name Abigail Clayton. So she's one of the early examples of somebody from the world of X doing a crossover, so to speak. Like, in the 70s, it's basically her and Marilyn Chambers, because Marilyn was in Rabid. But a lot of people don't mention Abigail Clayton. No, because she's associated with the Ferrari, and he's like... (laughs) Oh. (laughs) But, which is so cool, though. It's like, gosh, that's, you know, that that kind of beats, uh, I don't know, it's like poor, like, you know, you think about Jamie Gillis and his straight film was Night of the Zombies, which I haven't seen, but come on, Jamie deserved better. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Fuego. Fire. 
the white-hot heat of a woman possessed, possessed of an uncontrollable, unnatural passion, so all-consuming as to make the flames of hell mere glowing embers. Fuego, the insatiable, depraved hunger of a woman shorn of her mask of fidelity and respectability and bared for what she really is, a crazed female animal on the prowl. A dehumanized creature grasping and clawing for instant gratification from any source and any sex. Fuego, a woman beyond help. The help of physicians or a husband's unswerving love. Fighting frenetically to suppress the ravaging torments of a disease that drives her wantonly to perversion, madness, and self-destruction. Fuego is a story of a man as well. A distraught husband tortured by forces and events too overwhelming to cope with. Living a nightmare with only tenderness, understanding and devotion to guide him out of a maze from which there can be no escape. Willing to sacrifice his own self-respect, if only to insulate her and share in her ordeal. Fuego is a film the likes of which you have never seen before. Because it is the authentic story of a real person told with integrity and stark candor. It is as shocking as only real life can be, without contrivance or false reserve. It is, in fact, so bold and frank that it was banned in the very country where it was made, and its producer-director forced to flee in exile for having merely been the objective reporter of a case history heretofore only whispered in hushed tones. Fuego, starring Isabel Sarli, the voluptuous goddess of the South American screen. And Armando Bo, Argentina's leading producer-director. Suggested for mature adult audiences only. Fuego. A Haven International Pictures release. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Armando Bo's Fuego, where I'll be joined once again by Heather Drain. Until then, what's happening with you, Heather? Kat and I, as those of you who may not know, or hopefully know, we are the Hell's Bells. We have a podcast, and we're going to be recording our newest episode here very soon uh, with us scaring incels and wokesters alike with Feminism at Coco. Uh, also, for the devoted and curious, you can pick up mine and John Skip's epic film tome, The Bizarro Encyclopedia of Film Volume 1 at Barnes & Noble Online. Very cool. And Kat, what is happening in your world? Well, and another plug for the House Bowls episode. We're gonna we're gonna be more House Bowls this year. We're making a concerted effort to record every month, and we've got some great things on our planner. So we're like really, really looking forward to that. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. You should come with me to the end of the And your friends You know that you only need Say a word So 
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.